Let's open up our Bibles together. We're in Matthew chapter 7. Somebody get the lights, please. Matthew chapter 7, and we are going to be looking at verses 21 uh, through 23. The next week we'll finish chapter 7, and then we're going to spend Advent in a little bit different place than we have in past years. Uh, We are going to be unpacking the book of Ruth, because it's the story behind the story when it comes to Jesus. Uh, So we're going to be studying the book of Ruth for Advent, and then we'll pick up at chapter 8, Lord willing, at the beginning of the new year. So we are at Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 21 through verse 23. This is God's holy word. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. God, as we are considering such a sobering warning, Lord, we pray for light. We pray that you would open up our eyes so that we would behold uh, what it is for you uh, to to behold. Uh, Lord, we do pray that there is anybody uh, in our midst this morning who are in danger of hearing those words of, I never knew you depart that you might um, make them aware and that you might draw them to Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. All right. How confident are you that you would be able to discern, to be able to determine what was real or fake if I was, we're not doing it, uh, on the projector, if we had images up there of people and I asked you, is this a real person Or is this something created by artificial intelligence? How confident are you you'd be able to determine the two? Everybody nod your head, not confident at all, because I was not able to do it. So I tried this week. I was was reading an article by New York Times, and it was on AI, and it was was troubling to, to see how difficult it was to distinguish between what was real and what was fake. There are websites out there that will sell you fake people images to use on your website, to use with your business and advertising. And what's troubling is if you press a button, it changes how old they look, like by the decade. You make them a little older, a little younger, you can change their hair color, change their hair length, you can change their ethnicity. It is, it is troubling because these are not real people. It's kind of creepy. And I think that's just a reality. It's becoming more and more difficult to distinguish between what is real and what is fake. It requires a very discerning eye. And I think this is especially true in the context of the local church. You would think this would not be the case, but here is the reality. It can be challenging discerning a real, genuine believer in Jesus Christ from a false, pretending, professing Christian. 
But what we're talking about here has far more significance, far more importance than what we were talking about determining an image of a person. Eternity is at stake. So it's crucial that you and I are able to discern and determine a counterfeit faith from a real faith and those people who are in danger of this pretender faith, that they would be warned that this is not real faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to look at. I would argue it is some of the most troubling words in the whole Bible, specifically with what Jesus says. So in order to do that, as we determine real or fake, we're going to ask three questions if you're taking notes. One, we're going to ask, what is required? What do we need? What do you and I need to get into heaven? That's an important question to answer, right? I think everybody here wants to know if they're going to heaven. But we're going to ask that question and answer it. Secondly, we're going to ask the question, who is rejected? Because Jesus is going to be warning people in this passage that there are some who think they're safe and they're not safe at all. And he's going to warn them. And then lastly, we're going to ask the question, what is reality? Where do these rejected people really stand before a holy and righteous God? So let's get started as we pick up at verse 21. And we ask the question, what is required? Now, if you remember two weeks ago, we considered false prophets, And part of the problem with false prophets is they often look a lot like what? Real prophets. They're tricky. They're deceitful. And what we see is the natural overflow of that. If there are false prophets, there's going to be false what? Converts. There's going to be false believers. And Jesus is warning them of a faith that either saves or doesn't save How do you get into heaven? All right, let's read verse 21 together. First thing we see that's required is you must be a doer of his will. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So you hear that, and initially then Jesus responds, kind of the answer to that, well, who is the one that enters the kingdom of heaven? The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's been stressing a lot in these passages about there's a a narrow way. The narrow way leads to life. It's not traveled by many. There's the wide way. It's traveled by a lot of people. And it leads to what? Do you remember? Destruction. So he's still playing on that kind of, that idea, that theme as he keeps going. And he's stressing this, the exclusive nature of getting into heaven. Have you been to various events where some events were harder to get into, right? Friday night, we had a scrimmage for my son, varsity basketball. Anybody in the world who wanted to come could have came. It was in Margareta, Ohio. There was maybe 15 people in the audience, in the crowd, watching it, and and be honest, we were there because we had to drive them to the game, so, like, it was not very exclusive, like, it, there was no security, there was nobody checking tickets, but then there's other events that it's a whole lot harder to get into, not everybody can just walk into the Super Bowl, you need to have that ticket, your name needs to be on the list, right? And what Jesus is saying here, when it comes to heaven, 
When it comes to eternity, you need to have the ticket. You need to have your name on the, the list. And what is, in this particular context, with what Jesus is saying, what's the ticket? How do we get our name on the list? And what does he say? Doing the will of the Father. Why is that significant? One, because Jesus was all about doing this. Do you remember? John 6.38, listen to what Jesus says. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So his disciples would and should be about what Jesus was all about. And what was Jesus about? Doing the will of the Father. We go a little further in John 14, 15. We start, we start unveiling what does the will of the Father look like? Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. So we start seeing what it looks like to do the will of the Father is a life of, starts with an O, ends with an E. What word is that? Obedience. It's obeying God's command. It's applying his word in our life. John 1.25, or not John, James 1.25. James warns about this. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So it's, it's hearing the word and then applying the word and doing. It's about putting faith in action. And what we're going to see here is not just about talking a good game. Because that's what we're going to confront in today's passage. There are many of a would-be professing Christian who talk the talk and see very little action. And you see, getting into heaven is not about having the special handshake or having the passcode where you're able to kind of say the right thing and because you can say the right thing, then you get in. That's not. Because listen right here, what do they do? Right in the very beginning, he said, there's going to be some who say, Lord, Lord, who are not entering the, the kingdom of heaven. There are going to be people that can talk it, but according to Jesus, they don't walk it, therefore they don't get in. James 2.18 says, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. I mean, consider the two greatest commandments. You and I, Jesus says, we're called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the two greatest commandments. So to do the will of the Father would be to hear those words and then to apply those words. So that you and I love God with all of our being. We love our neighbor as ourself. It's faith in action. So before we move on, I, I want to ask you, I want you to, to look in the mirror spiritually. Are you a doer of God's will? Is your life application-driven? One of my concerns often with followers of Jesus is we love content, especially conservative, Bible-believing Christians. We love to, to keep eating it up, but then often we don't apply any of it. And what your need is not necessarily more and more content. 
So you don't need to listen to an online sermon seven days a week. You don't need to go to 15 different Bible studies. What you need to do is take the word that you do have and actually apply it to your life. And that's what Jesus is warning here. Is it evident by your life that you're a Christian? Because you must be a doer of his will to get into heaven. But he also is implying something else. You must be a depender on his work. You must be a depender on his work. Notice what he says, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And I want to stress this because it would be very easy from my first point for you to completely misinterpret and misunderstand what I'm saying here. You could hear this, I got to do God's will to get into heaven. So my kids' school, uh, there's a requirement that parents have to volunteer a certain number of hours. I think it's a great requirement. It gets parents involved in the school. It also gets some, some things that need to be done, done. You can coach. You can do. There's a wide assortment of ways. But you just, you, you're required to put in the, the, the time. Now I think the danger right here, and some of you here right now, not because of what I've said earlier, already implying this, you're missing the point. And when you think of heaven, you think that there is a requirement of work that needs to be done. So if I do the 20 hours at Toledo Christian, I'm set for the school year. I don't have to do any more. Now I can, but I'm not required. And I think some of you think, okay, I'm supposed to do God's will, so how many hours do I have to do? Like, how much of God's will do I have to do? What is the baseline? What is the minimum amount of God's will I have to do to get into heaven? Friends, if you are thinking that right now, you are severely missing the point of what Jesus is saying. Because truth be told, you and I cannot do enough of the will of God to get into heaven. You can't earn your way into salvation. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. And I think in the context of what we're saying, we could add, not as a result of doing God's will, so that no one may boast. But here's the problem. Not only can you and I not do enough of God's will to get into heaven. Here's, here's the really big issue. You can't do God's will without God's help. Isn't that troubling? John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. But listen, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So that's starting to get really troubling, right? We got to do God's will to get into heaven. We can't earn our way because we can't do it enough. And I can't even do it unless God is doing it through me. What in the world is Jesus talking about? I think what ultimately Jesus is talking about, the person who does the will of the Father is the person who is resting and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. John 6, 40, listen to this, and it's the same language. For this is the will of my Father. 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does God's will look like? Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That is the will of the Father at the end of the day. Walk out the hallway right now. We walk down the hall. First door on the left, if it was unlocked, you could walk into the pool. If the pool is empty of its water and I told you to swim, could you swim? I didn't even look it up. I don't think there's dry swimming. I'm arguing it's not swimming. Even if you can say it's dry swimming, you need water to swim. You cannot, listen to this, please understand this, you cannot do the will of the Father divorced of Jesus Christ. Will of the Father at the end of the day in the most basic sense is putting your faith and trust in Jesus and walking with Jesus. That is the will of the Father. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the person entering into heaven. So please do not misunderstand that doing the will of the Father is this, this religious act of works that somehow, some way is getting you into heaven. Well, are you, and, and, I, and I know this is reality, there are some of you here today who think you are getting into heaven by what you have done? Are you trying to earn your way? Do you see your need? Friends, anything that you've done that is in your credit where you think this is how I'm getting into heaven, you're, that, that good you've done is because God did it in and through you. So you don't even get credit for that. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? So that's what's required. That at the end of the day is what is required. Being a doer of his will, depending on his work. Well, the next question is who is required, what is, or who is rejected? Who is rejected? Who is this person, if they're not trusting in Christ, they're not living to obey, please them, who is this person, this professing individual that is denied entrance into heaven? One, they look the part. Read verse 22 with me. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many works in your name? Consider their name, their words. First of all, what did they say? Lord, Lord. They knew the term terminology. Do we have special talk in the church, like words, language? I mean, for those of you who did not know Jesus, did not grow up in a, a, a faith-based family, and you came to church for the very first time, did you feel out of place? Nod your head, right? One, you realize, I can't do the things that I normally say and do. So you frown upon cursing. Okay, won't do that. Like, there's these things you won't do, but then they use terms. We do this. What are some faith-based terms that we throw out there that you will not hear at work this week? Give me some. 
What is Sam Lot? What? Bathed in prayer. That's a different one. What? Grace. Grace. Atonement. Will you use atonement this week apart from religion? No, we don't. We use atonement, redemption. We, one of the things we love to say is it's, we, we're saved. Judgment. Redemption. I mean, those are those things. So here's the problem. This professing believer that is not a believer, they know how to talk. Lord, Lord, it's a, a term of reverence, of respect of Christ. It's a term that, you know, we're called to, to, to profess faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord. So they're using the term. But here's the danger. That even the demons use those kind of terms. Acts 19, 13. Acts 19, 13 these people, they were invoking the name of the Lord Jesus over those with evil spirits. And one of the spirits answered and said, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? So you start using, like, the demons know Jesus as Lord. They don't respond to Jesus as Lord, but they're aware. Consider their words, but here's the other part. Consider their works. And this is what I think is really troubling. They appear to be doing God's work. Do you notice that? They appear to be doing God's will, right? Listen to everything they do. They're prophesying in the name of Jesus. They're casting out demons in his name. They, they do mighty works in the name of Jesus. Signature forgery happens all the time. And people who are good at it, they could write your name and you and I would not be able to determine whether or not you had wrote your name or they had wrote the name. It seems so similar. And that's kind of what we see going on. Now, we don't know. Maybe these, these works are fake. But the way they speak of them, it sounds like they're not fake. Does God ever use unbelievers to do work? Yeah. Look at Numbers chapters 22 and 25 with Balaam. Balaam, not a good guy. God speaks to him like it's not uncommon. We also need to realize that Satan has power that God allows him to have. In the story of, of the plagues with Egypt, and remember, like, Pharaoh's magicians, they were able to do some things. They weren't able to do everything, but they were able to do some things. And truth be told, when Jesus said that he was going to be betrayed, do you remember that passage in the gospel where the other 11 pointed to Judas? Do you remember that? He's like, somebody's going to betray me, and all 11 pointed and said, obviously, it's Judas. That passage isn't there because nobody knew if anything, Judas was one of the most respected and valued of the men, because guess who was in charge of the money? Judas. So he looked the part. He was doing the work. Uh, John 12, 4, he was worried about the poor getting cared for. And I think the danger in all of this, and there are people, people here, who are doing God things. I tithed. 
I've taught a Bible study. I helped serve in the nursery. I've, I've done all these things. People in here, I guarantee there are people who have done these things devoid of saving faith. And there is this false sense of security that they're right with God. I mean, truth be told, there will be preachers who preached, even at times, faithfully, who did not know Jesus. There will be missionaries over around the world telling people about Jesus who did not know Jesus. And that's what he's warning. Are you too accepting of people who talk to talk? Are you all talk? Are you doing the work without faith in the one? Because they looked apart. And here's the thing. They lack the position. Listen to what Jesus says. And then will I declare to you, I never knew you. I think part of the reason for this emphasis on Jesus' part is look at what they had focused on. Their focus... These false converts was what? Look at what I've done. There's no warning because they say, hey, we've trusted in you, Jesus. And he says, I don't know you. No, they said, but look at what we've done. We've done this and we've done that and we've done that. No, that is the issue. And he says, I don't know you. Now, does Jesus not know them? I mean, it would be fair, right? Right now in the world, 8 billion people. Do you know every person? I guarantee if I was to go to Churchill's right now, Sunday, pretty busy shopping day, most of the people there I am not going to know. So let's give God the benefit of the doubt. He's got a lot of stuff going on, universes and everything. Like, he doesn't know a few people. What's the, no, that's not what he's talking about. Knowing in the Bible implies something. What's it imply? It implies intimacy. It implies relationship. One of the first times we saw the Bible, somebody knowing somebody, is in Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew Eve, his wife. And what happened? She conceived and bore Cain. Almost every child that we read about in the Bible, it often is preceded with a husband knew his wife, and then came a baby. So when Jesus is saying, I don't know you, it's the idea of relationship. It's the idea of intimacy, that you are not in an intimate relationship with me. What would happen, and we see it all the time, and I I remember even growing up with the weird TV show, the Maury Povich show. Maury Povich, I believe, was a, a mayor of a city before, and he's like, I don't make much money doing this. I'll do scandalous daytime TV show. And what Maury Povich's like big claim to fame a show is he would get people on the show who weren't sure if their kid was their kid. And they would do these like DNA testing and then they would come back and they would say, who's the father? And they would have a couple guys and they would determine who the father was. Trash TV, all right? What Jesus is saying here to these people, he's, he's saying, you're not my child. I don't, I don't know you. 
They don't know him personally. John 1, 12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the flesh, or will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And notice he says, I never knew you. He doesn't say, I used to know you. I've known you for a time. I never knew you. And because he doesn't know them, they in turn don't know him. John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. These people he's speaking to at the end of the day are not trusting in Christ for their salvation. They're trusting in their works. They're trusting in their connection to, to, to religious practice, their, their interactions in the context of the local church. They are pretenders. Well, are you a child of God? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you resting and being religious, going to church, tithing your member? Does God know you? I mean, that's a, isn't that the most important question you can imagine in all of your history? Do I know God? And does he know me? Have you received Christ as Savior and Lord? So we've seen what is required we have to be a doer of his will, ultimately a depender on his work. We're asking that question, who's rejected? They look the part, but they lack the position. They're not children of God. Well, what is reality? If these professors are not real, what are they? First of all, they are under the wrath of God, wrath of the Lord. Listen to what Jesus says to them. Depart from me. You see, I think we sometimes miss the point when we think of eternity. Heaven is all about presence, right? Heaven is all about presence. The people you love, you love to spend time with them. Amen? Have you traveled far distances for short periods of time just so you could be in the presence of people? I mean, you see it, especially younger romantic people who are, who are, you know, maybe not married yet. They might travel 12 hours to go visit their boyfriend or girlfriend in college for two hours just so they can see them because they long for presence. Heaven is all about presence. It's not about roads and a house that you build up in heaven. It's not about clouds. It's not about you and I playing harps. No, what heaven is about is we are going to be in the presence of God. Revelation 20 verse 3, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. That is the greatness of heaven. We get Jesus. It's being in God's presence for eternity, and it will never get old. We will never get bored with it. If heaven is about presence, 
Hell is about a lack of presence. And that's why I said, I think some of these, these words that Jesus says here are by far some of the most troubling words in all of the Bible. Because these are people he's speaking of who profess faith in Jesus. They say, Lord, Lord, you know, we're, we're, we're Christians. We follow you. And he's going to look at them and he's going to tell them, I don't know you and depart from me. On that day, it's the day of judgment, that there will be no second chance. Matthew 25, verse 41, then you will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He goes on and says, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That is closure. That is finality. There is no turning back. There is no second chance. That this is the wrath and condemnation that will fall on unbelievers. It's you and I getting, because here's, here's the catch. I think too many Christians who aren't really Christians have a false sense of security. They've never really trusted in Christ. They go to church, they do some religious things, and they feel confident that, hey, I'm close enough. You don't know Jesus, and what you're doing is you're getting on a plane. You're going to have to jump out of that plane, and here's the parachute you're wearing. But once you jump out of that plane and you pull, there is no chute. That should terrify you to no end. Well, do you long for the presence of God? Do you fear the absence of his? Will you be on the outside that day? Unbeliever here who thinks he's a believer, be scared. And believers, be disturbed that there are people amongst you who don't have the parachute. Like I said, there is nothing more terrifying than hearing, depart from me. Because when he says depart, it's over. There's no turning back. Do you understand the gravity of that? That's hell forever and ever and ever and ever. You will never be in the presence of me. That should break our heart that real people will die today hellbound. That should grieve us. That should inspire us. That should motivate us. That's why we're praying for some random country that until today I had no idea where it was. Do you understand? That is what he's saying. But here's the deal. Not only are they under the wrath of God, they are workers of lawlessness. He speaks the truth. I mean, you and I, young age, and I think this is good. I'm pro this. We teach our kids sticks and stones may break our bones. But words will never, but what do we do? We, we tell them though, don't be mean. Don't name call. I have five boys. They kind of name call. Especially when we play sports. That's a bad condemnation, uh, combination. Jesus kind of does some name calling here, right? Seems like he's being kind of harsh. I mean, they're doing stuff for you, Jesus. They're prophesying in your name. They're casting out demons in your name. They're doing good works in your name. They're calling you Lord, Lord. You need to lighten up Jesus. But Jesus is not about lightening up. Jesus is about speaking truth. I mean, think of who, who is probably one of Jesus' hands down closest relationships in his earthly ministry. Name one of the names. Peter. Listen to what he says to Peter. Get behind me, Satan. 
is like his best bud. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And then think of the Pharisees. What does he call them? A, a lot of biblical name calling. You brood of vipers. You whitewashed tombs. Because here is, here's what we need to understand. Not only about speaking the truth, but seeing the truth. And the truth is this. I mean, you've seen it before. If there's a contentious, maybe groups of people, you might say you're on team this versus team that. Here is the truth of the matter. Everybody in here is on a team. You're either on team God, team Jesus, or team Satan. There is not a third team. And that's why he can look at these people who are doing all this stuff for the sake of Jesus and he says, you're not on my team. You don't know me because you're either for God or against. Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Don't be fooled by the outside resemblance of faith. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Friends, we will be amongst people. We will have people amongst us who seem to look the part who might do some things, might say some things. Don't be confused. Don't be deceived. Anyone who isn't trusting in Jesus Christ personally for their salvation stands condemned. Anyone who doesn't know Christ that way is a worker of lawlessness. They're workers of Satan. Well, do you need to hear this truth today? Do you need to hear the name calling? Do you think you can straddle the fence? Are you for Christ or are you against him? Do you have a false sense of security? Does anybody know who Lil Michaela is? Lil Michaela. 19-year-old Brazilian-American influencer. Has 3 million followers online. Has partnered with the likes of Samsung and Prada in the words of one website, she has captured the hearts of many. Lots of images, lots of videos of her. Guess what? She is not real. Not real. It's the pictures that we talked about in the beginning of the sermon taken to the next level. Striking human likeness, computer generated. Uh, it, it wasn't even acknowledged early on that she was fake. So people are like following this 19-year-old thinks she's so amazing. She's not even a human being. People were enamored by this fictional person. I think as we said in the beginning, it is becoming difficult to distinguish between what is real and what is fake. It requires a very discerning eye. And I think we're being duped too often in the church when it comes to false professions. We've seen somebody pray a prayer at an event, they walked up front, they checked a box, and immediately we think they're a believer, they're going to heaven, praise the Lord. And in some of those instances, praise the Lord, they're going to heaven. But genuine faith is what we're talking about. 
People can talk the talk, but unless they are walking the walk, they are more, no more real than Lil Michaela when it comes to faith. But friends, this is an eternity issue. This is not some AI advertising social media stunt. Anyone who has a false profession needs to be warned. And the number of people in this gymnasium today, it would be statistically probably impossible that there is not at least one person in this room today who has a false profession of faith, who goes to church, maybe has helped serve in various capacities, and because of those things thinks, I'm good, I'm okay, I'm all right, I'm going to heaven. If you have not turned to Christ, if you are not trusting in Christ, that is not enough. You need to understand the danger. Because one day, and notice what he says, many. This is not the anomaly of a couple random people. He's going to say, sorry, I didn't know you. He says, many are going to say to me. And he's going to look to those many and say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Will you hear that same dreadful word of condemnation? I hope and I pray not. I hope and pray that on that day, rather than hearing depart from me, he's going to look at you. He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come on in. Great is your reward. Let's pray. God, we come before you right now. Uh, we acknowledge just the uh, sober nature to the message that we're talking. Lord, we know that there are going to be some here who think they know you and they really don't know you. And at the end of the day, if they continue down the, the trajectory of their life, they will hear those frightful words to depart from you. But Lord, today is still today. They're still alive. They're still breathing. They're still moving and thinking. So we pray, God, we plead that, Lord, you would open up their eyes, that you would convict their hearts, that you would draw them to Christ, and that today might be the day that they become your child, that the, today would be the day that they are, are known by you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we respond through worship.